0: Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management.
1: I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models, that is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying episodes of the Mental Models podcast, you'd likely enjoy reading Understanding Behavioral Bias A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. George and I co authored this book, Merging Our Knowledge, to provide you with an authoritative guide to where our money related biases come from and also what we can do about them. Material from Understanding Behavioral Bias is now included within the legendary Harvard Case Studies content library. Harvard Case Studies is one. Widely used across the worlds of finance and business, and it's recognized as being one of the top repositories of leading edge financial content. The book is available in both print and Kindle versions on Amazon. So buy it, read it, and improve your process. Welcome back to the Mental Models
0: Podcast. Yes. uh, One thing I do want to touch on before we get started we'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, You know, we do a number of these different shows, and we talk about a lot of different topics. And to the extent that anybody has anything that they'd like to see further exploration of or a topic that they'd love to comment on, we want to hear from you.
1: Yeah, definitely react to anything, uh, whether you like a particular episode or want to hear more about a particular uh, type of topic. We've been trying a variety of different things recently. Uh, Today is a little bit of a shift. We're going to talk about a book. Uh, that both of us uh, read and admired. Uh, and that book is *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, *Sapiens* has the second tagline: "A Brief History of Humankind." And this is a rather amazing book. It's a it's a rather long book, um, and it's an enormously wide-selling bestseller. It was originally developed. Uh, Harari is a uh, Department of History professor at the Hebrew University. And he did a course on um, human history that evolved into this book, which was originally published in Hebrew in 2011. Then it was republished in English in 2015 with a really good book agent and became a giant international bestseller. Many of you may have read Sapiens already. Uh, So we were going to talk today about uh, some of the lessons we we took from Sapiens uh, about human history as it applies to. Um, our models of the world, our brains, our economy, relevant to a whole variety of topics. This
0: book, I think, is extremely important. And as I read it, I saw a lot of application in the world of finance. Uh, So much of what we do is basically captured by a lot of the concepts that uh, are talked about in Sapiens. And, you know, frankly, I think it's probably one of the most important intellectual books that I have ever read. And I think you
1: can read it multiple times. So I've actually read it through twice and, and sort of gleaned different lessons each time. Um, and I think you can read this at almost at any point in life because it's pretty it's pretty straightforwardly written. I like that it's sort of a, almost like a conversational style. And Hariri has a tendency to be able to introduce – what would amount to being pretty controversial topics in a really disarming way, and um, I think there's just a lot of insight in this book from a from a science standpoint. I wanted to start with this cognitive revolution idea. Harari brings up the Peugeot Lion Man, which was um, a, an ivory figure from 32,000 years ago, and it's a uh, it's a hybrid of a of a human and a and a lion, and he he brings this up to point out. Homo sapiens uh, were capable of imaginary feats, right? So, so you don't actually have a lion person. They didn't exist at the time. And uh, so, so someone was able to kind of assemble within their own mind um, things that could not really exist and create a representation of it. So the wherewithal to create using tools of the day. Um, a representation that made this more concrete. And then he he brings up Peugeot the car company as another fiction that Homo sapiens is capable of generating. And Peugeot was a, uh, a founder of this, this car company, and it still exists, and their logo is the Lion Man. And I thought it was very poetic, uh, both amongst the sculpture from 32,000 years ago and the modern-day corporation. Both of them are... Um, basically fictions, right? You can't you can't walk along and find a real lion man or a, a company. And as a, a species, we, we collaborate to form these entities um, that are not concrete. And they don't just come across our path. We have to sort of go out of our way to assemble them. And uh, they often have a social component to it, which I think is really um, one of those other key lessons that so much of what we do Um, has trust as one of the uh, undergirding principles. So trusting others uh, to form a corporation and trusting others to uh, carry that corporation on forward. We can plan very far into the future around these kind of agreed upon relatively arbitrary concepts.
0: Right, and it goes beyond certainly the creativity associated with Pugio. It really is pervasive. If we think about legal structures, religious structures, financial structures, things that we take for granted in our everyday lives that govern uh, our interaction, if you take any number of products, uh, right now, Dan and I are sitting in a garage and there's a bicycle that's hanging from the ceiling. Uh, And if you think about that bicycle and uh, the tires, the handlebars, the metal, uh, you know, how it actually got into the garage from the store, from the distributor, from the manufacturer, how they've got the raw materials associated with them. They're all based off various relationships that are fictional. The laws that govern, uh, for instance, the international trade associated with all of the elements of the bicycle and uh, the laws associated with safety. Uh, the regulations that have to be in place for any sort of consumer product, uh, the tortious liability that could be there for a product defect. Uh, you know, if, if Dan decides that he actually wants to ride the bicycle, then uh, he's got to obey all sorts of laws surrounding that. And then there are laws of etiquette on how uh, you should, you know, be respectful of other people that uh, you come into contact with. Uh, when you're when you're on your bicycle.
1: And if you wanted to steal that bicycle, there are laws that protect me getting that object back. So we've created all of these rule structures um, essentially out of thin air, but they have to do with uh, shared contracts and shared agreements of how we're going to do our business. And that's what's enabled the world to go around. It's, just, it's such a, a widely applicable lesson for um, how we've developed. And also, it, he brings up the arbitrary nature of money. You know, we, we don't think about that too often. Money is only valuable because we've agreed it's valuable. It has no real intrinsic value. And throughout history, different metals have uh, been seen as valuable. What, what was really valuable is the printing of a government stamp on it. that The government was going to vouch for that currency. Again, trust, right? It's, it's, this is a, a gold standard of trust. You're protected if you do, if you accomplish trade using this
0: metal. Right. And it's just funny that you, uh, you know, use the word gold standard, which itself is latent with all sorts of. Oh, there's
1: metaphors
0: abound in this book. Yeah. Right. Right. And so the notion is, is that so much of the value and so much of the reality that we come into contact with on a day to day basis is fictional, it is a human construct that we have put together in order to organize ourselves and to direct our interactions. Money is perhaps one of the most powerful of all of these fictional constructs. It transcends language, it transcends borders, it transcends. uh, Like for instance, if I go uh, to a different country and I don't have uh, a, uh, I can't speak the language, but I happen to have some dollars or I have gold, then there will be a almost universal recognition of that as having some sort of agreed upon value without us being able to
1: communicate otherwise. Yeah, and money often gets uh, castigated as being the root of all evil and it's all problematic. But the reality is if you travel internationally and you have some money, you, you can make friends pretty easily and and transact and form partnerships on the fly. That wouldn't be possible without uh, trade goods in prior um eras of of human history. And of course, if your trade goods aren't desired by other people, you're out of luck, whereas money everyone will take. So it's, again, a big agreement or contract that's so critical for uh, driving forward human history. Um, Another uh, feature of the book, which I wanted to point out, which I thought was really impactful, is um, he has some great images the Peugeot lion, lion Man being one of them. Another was was the history of map making. So in, in uh, 1459, he shows a map that's detailed showing the whole world and points out that a lot of that was imaginary and just filled in because they didn't know what was there. So they just sort of would, would make up a landmass. And um, it was as if the world was all understood and known and protected that way. Uh, Fast forward to 1525, and there's one of those old maps that just shows the edge, like the uh, eastern edge of South America with nothing filling in the middle or west part of the continent. And that was an important statement of we don't know. And admitting ignorance was an enormous driver of human progress. And I didn't really appreciate this until reading this book back through that it was around that Renaissance period, just the willingness to acknowledge ignorance enabled someone to explore. It was the reason to go figure out what was beyond that border. And it was the reason to run experiments and have a scientific revolution. We could find answers and dig deeper on things we simply didn't understand as long as we could admit the lack of understanding.
0: Dan and I have talked about this before. It's interesting, even on a personal level, uh, beyond the societal level, that uh, you we all know these people that uh, are never without an answer, and uh, they have real difficulty admitting that they've been wrong or made a mistake, and it creates this blind spot uh, that really inhibits growth and inhibits your ability
1: to self-correct and to improve. And it underlies confirmation bias, which is perhaps the most insidious bias I can think of right now, just the belief that you're right and others are wrong, and you will go to the mat defending that position. Um, we often talk about trying to search for the missing pieces that you can't see of your mental map, right? There's We all are missing elements um, somewhere in our lives, and that quest for learning is how we revise our picture and it makes us a lot more uh, on the same page. And so I, I just think that's a really powerful lesson. If you think about the map
0: uh, and you think about the progress of science and the progress that we've seen creating these schema or these models that we have of what the universe actually looks like uh, and how they've progressed over time, you can have very specific models. You, know, you think about things like uh, the, the physics of Newton that are ultimately surpassed, uh, by Einstein's work. And then, you know, even further, uh, with quantum mechanics, dark matter, you know, things, and I don't really, you know, th- these are things that I speak of with limited knowledge, but we know that our understanding of the universe and the flexibility, uh, in implementing, uh, the scientific, scientific method has given us the flexibility to create ever more elaborate schema to be able to describe and manipulate the world around us and work in coordination with one another to uh, be able to achieve things and to be able to, to uh, create uh, really uh, a better material existence. Yeah, we can freely
1: trade knowledge. And uh, another, I think, historical point that I found quite interesting that Harari points out is that for much of human history, life was not going to change, right? You weren't going to see a big shift in your lifetime. Um, There was no reason to think that things would change generations into the future. And people often imagined a future that was probably the same or maybe slightly worse than the one they were living through because plagues and uh, disease and your tribe being wiped out by raiders was a reality. So it was a lot easier to be pessimistic then um, because there wasn't an arc of history to appreciate. I mean, it, it makes me think how, how privileged we are now to be experiencing such amazing progress. And so uh, he he handles all of that uh, without having to say that lesson it's just kind of you glean that out of the the narrative that he he creates um one area that i think is maybe most relevant to the uh audience uh that follows this podcast is chapter 16 the capitalists creed i think this was the most insightful chapter for me um and he so eloquently describes um the changes historically that enabled us to create our monetary systems, all based on trust and credit. And so um, we'll provide some of this in the show notes. Um, he he presents in early in the chapter, The Entrepreneur's Dilemma, imagining a fictional baker who wants to make cakes and bread and sell them. The problem is this baker has no bakery, uh, so she can't make her cakes, uh, therefore she can't make money. And she can't hire a contractor for lack of money to build the building to make the bakery. So she's stuck in this uh, vicious circle of uh, not having any of the uh, aspirations. And um, the change, of course, is credit. If you uh, can make an agreement with that contractor that you will pay them once the, uh, the cakes start getting baked and you do so, by God, you get, you get growth. So someone has to trust someone in there that revenues are going to uh, come about. And then he introduces the magic circle of the modern economy, which is an amazingly insightful little figure with just five uh, little stations in a circular sort of arrowed um, arrangement. And uh, trust in the future being one of the keys to this whole thing. Trust leads to credit. Extending credit enables the baker to pay contractors, and that contractor can then build a new bakery. The promise of new bakeries yields cakes that pay back loans, and once loans are paid back with interest, there's even more trust in the future. And the whole thing becomes a cycle that launches us on the route to modern economies.
0: Right, and hence uh, you know, excessive trust ultimately will lead to uh, perhaps— some, some foolish decisions down the road and then trust comes into question. And hence we have, you know, then the Minsky moment, right? We have that moment where credit becomes quite tight, uh, and you have a self recurring or basically self reinforcing cycle on the downside until it gets to the point, uh, where the value of providing trust is so high that it starts again. And you start, you know, with that positive reinforcing cycle and a cyclical nature.
1: Yeah. And Hariri gives good examples throughout this book. So one of these uh, examples related to credit was um, in relation to uh, where one would put their funds in Europe in in, uh, a prior era. And it turned out Dutch companies that were exploring and trading were able to Payback loans, uh, and people were making money with them. Uh, And it was the story of a of a uh, of a king with two sons. And one one son invests the money in this Dutch uh, trading company, and gets the gets the investment to uh, be paid back and continues to to grow. And the other invests in um, in Spanish conquest, (laughs) And, and the king is basically taking that money and. Pouring into warfare and then taxing even more, no one gets their loan paid back, and it's a dead end. And it really struck me as, wow, that's that's how history works. It's it's the ability to trade successfully, make everyone who's a participant uh, win. That leads to flourishing and growth. And and the model of kings dictating that we're going to go take over something kind of got killed off because it wasn't as successful. You know, it was a waste of resources and people didn't really believe in it. And ultimately they they didn't have a way forward. And so um, it just underscores the point of how cooperation, trust and participation in a market is actually what drove forward so much of the progress.
0: Yeah. There's no question about it. Uh, trade tends to be a peacemaker. If you have someone that can provide you something that you can't otherwise have, and you can provide them with something that they see as having value and it has more value to them relative to what they produce than uh, it has to you, then there's a non-zero sum improvement in the lives of both people that trade. And you can see where that can lead to a very peaceful coexistence because it's in your interest for the person that you're trading with to do well because you want to be able to trade with them in the future. Uh, again, it's this trust in the future. Uh, so both parties have an incentive to preserve the well-being of the other.
1: Right. And, uh, successful interactions lead to more trust, which leads to more growth, which makes people more optimistic. Um, now, that has limits, uh, and w- we see that play out in in market cycles, that there are going to be points where things become overextended, but uh, that realization that uh, people can trust one another and plan for the future in mutually beneficial ways, and that's really one of the key drivers of progress historically, and that's not what you learn in school. You know, I, my, my recollection of my high school history and even into college history is it was often taking an isolated period and examining the mechanics of what had happened. And it was all presented in a way that almost made it feel inevitable, like here's what happened and here's why it happened, end of story. Not so. According to Hariri, he he accurately points out how fluid and dynamic our interactions are and that history is um, not preset. It didn't have to work out one way um, he points out quite often in the book these these, cor- these uh, sort of linchpin moments where it happened to work out a certain way in a particular context, but it might have very well gone differently um, if the timing were or in some way uh, changed. And so there's there's some realization of how history isn't written; it it is a dynamic interaction amongst numerous factors that all come to play. On on one particular interaction, so I, I like the way he he kind of sets that that stage for you know the future really isn't isn't predetermined.
0: It's not, uh, and it, it's interesting. You can ask questions like, if there were no Hitler, would there have been the Second World War? Uh, there was there, there's an interesting document documentary that's currently available uh, called World War Two in Color uh, about uh, World War Two and of walks through all of those old reels and they've colorized them. And one thing that's really striking is that a lot of the generals, when Hitler invaded France, uh, with the blitzkrieg, a lot of them were very reluctant to engage in it because everybody, the whole world was war weary, but Hitler didn't have such reservations and was able to use his charisma to rally the German people uh, towards uh, doing something that they otherwise wouldn't have had the stomach necessarily to do. Now, some people might argue that the stage was set in world war one and that there was no way around any of it, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think that there's definitely, uh, and and if, if, if the French, for instance, in world war one hadn't had such, Draconian reparations towards the Germans. Maybe there wouldn't have been the level of resentment that could have led to the possibility that
1: Hitler would be accepted. Yeah, Harari doesn't shy away from the uh, multifaceted nature of these interactions and that they're complex. Uh, they and they interact, right? So this, the all the discussion of the scientific revolution comes to a point where um, nuclear fission is possible and he points this out as the game changer for warfare because of nuclear weapons we had mutually assured annihilation on the table and so if you look at the last 70 years of history you know we haven't engaged in world war three and and that technology the ability to um to know what will happen <laughs> the assured zero-sum warfare has taken that off the table. And um, you know that's that's sort of where uh, the, the progress of science really met history and uh, changed the game once again.
0: Right. Uh, There's someone, I can't remember who had said it, but some people have said that the nuclear bomb should be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, for
1: preserving you know, global peace. I think that might have been mentioned by Harari, actually. Oh, okay. Same line. So yeah, the- I mean, it's, it's out there, I'm sure, in the public uh, perception broadly. Just to, to point out, uh, the final segment of the book uh, moves into in- intelligent design of humans engineering our environments, which we're definitely doing. He points out how immensely Homo sapiens are proliferating around the globe, uh, we are enormously disruptive to ecosystems as we've seen um, in countless instances he points out every time uh, homo sapiens explore they basically wipe out the megafauna of the of the area the the large um, animals simply do not uh, do not last um, we have domesticated farm animals and treated them uh, with little regard for their well-being and we have a Astronomical number of cattle and chickens that exist in the world, based on um, human-manufactured ecology, and so um, there's a downside to all of this. He, he accurately points out some of the the challenges that uh, the world faces when this many Homo sapiens um, come to exist, and he gets into some of the ethics uh, involved there. He goes on to the to, to talk about the future of Homo sapiens and talks about things like implanting chips. Um, robotic arms that are mind controlled and uh, the possibilities of people leading digital existences, things like the singularity. I thought that section of the book was, uh, it was definitely shorter and I think it was, it was not necessarily as informative. I, I don't, for for example, as a, as a neuroscientist, I don't really think we're close to implanting chips onto our cortex. It's just so difficult to get silicon and wiring to interact with our biological modifiable dynamic system. And we simply don't understand the brain well enough to actually create these sort of implants. Um, if you think about the cochlear implant that helps um, people to hear better, you know that's been a real success story. Um, Harari talks about how some of the drawbacks that would come with technologically amplifying ourselves and brain hacking. I don't think that I f- share those fears as much as he does. Um, and he does caution. Uh, it's worth pointing out his last words of caution. Um, he asked the question, is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who who do not know what they want and the, <laughs> the, the notion that, that humans have become so powerful at modifying our um, environments and controlling things yet. Are we really happier? And I think that is an interesting jumping off point to wrap up this conversation. He Horari asks that question. Um, Does any of this progress ultimately lead to better quality of life? So uh,
0: before we started this podcast, Dan and I were talking a little bit about the Oculus uh, two, uh, Halo, I think it's Halo Two. Uh, that uh, I got one for my family. It's very, very reasonably priced. It's three hundred dollars uh, for this. That you can just log in with your phone into Facebook, and if you have a Wi-Fi connection, uh, it is striking how uh, powerful the uh, virtual, uh, the virtual environment is with this. And you know, perhaps anything that would be an internal you know, jacking in or adding some sort of chip to the brain is not very likely, but perhaps it is pretty uh, reasonable to see that when we look five years out, that we could have, you know, virtual simulations uh, where you could replicate a world that's not very distinguishable from the world that we actually live in. And uh, so if you think of that world, Uh, as far as the limitations that would be placed on what you could do or, uh, you know, what type of wealth you may have in this alternative reality, uh, it seems like that
1: could be quite boundless. And I, I go back to our tagline for this podcast. It's not a brain in a jar. Right, you don't want to just pop a chip onto your cortex and suddenly magical things happen. We're embodied. We we take in the world through vision and sound and touch, and so that's a more likely future for sort of mind hacking is actually haptic gloves and earpieces and of course the artificial visuals of uh, VR. That's all on. We're on the doorstep of that being a game changer. We could simulate. All manner of possible environments and have algorithms that predict our behavior. And maybe that's the way we actually brain hack is that um, when we're interacting in a certain environment, an algorithm could feed us relevant information, almost like mind reading, based on our, uh, you know, sort of a machine learning version of our tendencies. So rather than having to plug yourself in, so to speak, or immerse yourself in a computer system, I think a more plausible future is that we technologically modify our experience through, you know, the human channels that we already have.
0: Right. And you could see that where that could be optimized and you could actually enhance the ability for us to be able to do work, enjoy entertainment, things of that nature, because of the external stimulation that you have as opposed to an interaction, as opposed to uh, something that is going to be uh, invasive.
1: Yeah. And just to, to wrap this up, um, I think when, when uh, the happiness concept is introduced at the end of that book, there's a little bit of a glum sort of feel to it, like we're never satisfied. And even though we've come this far, we're still looking for the next giant thing. And it, in some ways, it does capture the fact that we're foragers. We, we forage for information. We forage for uh, things that we find engaging and we're always going to, um, but we don't do it all in the same way. So I thought there was one possible interesting consideration that this this made me think about is just, um, do we have different sort of phenotypes or profiles for being happy? And some people have kind of a, a general happiness level that's a little higher than others and are more optimistic. And, um, you know, we don't all see it the same way. There are definitely some general human trends that come from our, our biology and our experiences. But uh, the plasticity is really lost, I think, at the end of that book. Um, we're highly adaptable. And uh, the promise of all of these uh, new technologies is that they will uh, be informed by, you know, it's, it's a buyer's marketplace. Whatever does create the most good is probably what will win out. Um, I, I guess I have a little bit more of an optimism bias than uh, Harari does.
0: Yeah, I think I'm in the uh, on the same page with you on that one, day.
1: Okay, so uh, we've talked all about the book Sapiens uh, from 2017. It's a, a huge bestseller packed with all sorts of interesting insights. Uh, we've talked about the arbitrary nature of money. We've, we've also done a podcast on value where we touched on that. Uh, credit and trust being the two big drivers in human history. Um, we, we need an optimism bias in some ways to sustain growth and to, uh, be willing to trust other people and admitting our own ignorance is often the key to progress. Saying, I don't know is okay. As long as you go and seek answers and fill in those missing blind spots in your model of the world. And ultimately, I think this paves the way toward a brighter future than is projected at the end of that book with, uh, the possibility of, Working more on those uh, happiness and well being questions.
0: Hopefully, uh, this has been helpful and you uh, have been able to fill in a little bit more of your map.
1: Okay, we'll talk to you again soon.
0: Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-star book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.